Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you've read enough Civil War history to be listening to this show, you know that frontal assaults against fortified positions were rarely successful. Plenty of historians have commented on how long it took the generals to figure that out, but few have looked at how quickly the men in the ranks came to that conclusion. Using William Sherman's 15th Army Corps as a case study, Dr. Eric Michael Burke shows how an aversion to frontal assaults became just one element in a unique soldier's culture that developed within that unit. It's all in his book, Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862-1863. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P- O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the nice and quiet Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University but as always not representing the university, not speaking for the university, uh, not doing anything at this moment for the university except spreading its fame far and wide through this podcast. Uh, And likewise, my guest will only speak for himself, as we always do here. Well, I'm glad to be talking with you tonight and and glad to be feeling much better than I was over the weekend. I I picked up a bug last week um, from a, a... student who I, well, I don't know for sure who, who I got it from, but there is a person in the front row uh, coughing throughout an entire hour lecture, and this was in a fairly small classroom, and uh, I am not going to say that, that Typhoid Mary or Typhoid Larry, uh, you can guess, uh, was responsible for this, but I was just on my back all weekend and I'm all better today. My wife, however, is dreadfully sick. Now she's got it. Uh, looks like a 72 hour bug and then it goes away. Uh, but only once in my teaching career have I sent a student home from, uh, from class for, for just being obviously sick and coughing and disruptively coughing. 
uh, and that was long before the, the pandemic. Now, in its aftermath, I think it may be a little more quicker on the trigger about that because it's just not right to do that. Well, another hazard of teaching uh, here at ECU, a colleague uh, in the well-known Lincoln historian wrote to me last week and said he had heard about what he called a, a woke science class being taught here and hoped it wasn't affecting my teaching. Now, I think of myself as a, uh, a wide awake uh, in the Lincolnian tradition, uh, but I hadn't heard anything about such a class, so I didn't know what what he was, was talking about, and I uh, went and looked it up. Uh, he, he gave me a reference. There was a journal article that somebody in the uh, chemistry department was teaching a course on chemistry and feminism, and the course description seemed written to trigger... Uh, every possible reaction. It, it mentioned critical race theory, it mentioned intersectionalism, and so on. But the thing is, it, it and this was only clear, it was clear to me looking at, at the course number, it's a special topics course. And every department has these. Uh, ours does here in the history department. I, I would guess uh, if you're in academia, your department does too, that where anybody can teach anything, any topic uh, they want without having to go through the curriculum approval process. You can only do it a limited number of times. And if it turns out there's a demand for it and it seems like a good idea, then you can go through the very rigorous uh, curriculum approval process to get it actually written into the catalog. So this course that, that my colleague was, was concerned about is not an approved course. It's not a formal part of the curriculum at ECU, uh, if it were to go through that process, I would want to know something about the credentials of the people teaching it, because if you're going to historicize the practice of chemistry, as the, the description said, then you should have a historian involved in the design and delivery of the content, not just chemists or uh, uh, any, any more than I would teach a chemistry course. So I, I hope I set my, my colleague at, at rest that it's not affecting our teaching here in history. And just if, if you're not currently in a department and special topics doesn't mean something to you technically, just keep in mind when you read about nutty college courses uh, and people like to publicize them when they find out about them, nine times, 99 out of 100, they are probably special topics being taught one time by somebody and they are not uh, not formal. So before you write that angry letter to the editor about it, uh, for that matter, if you know what a letter to the editor is, you're probably old enough. Uh, uh, if you're too young to know what that means, then, then you wouldn't be bothered by these courses. So, well, let's move on. Uh, what we have uh, a more serious threat to history I want to mention uh, to you tonight and actually ask for your help with the American Battlefield Trust has uh, been alerting people, you probably have seen this on your own uh, feeds somewhere, they are trying to buy land at, at Chancellorsville, uh, the tract that includes Dowdall's Tavern. It's, it's where uh, Jackson is massing for the, uh, the, the flank attack. Uh, they were going to purchase 42 acres of that, and the deal has not been consummated. There were some government grants that didn't come through. And if the trust can't get that land, can't raise 450000 it's possible that, and well, likely that developers will get it. 
and then you'll have a McDonald's or, or whatever they choose to build right there on the Chancellorsville battlefield. So if you haven't ever donated to ABT, American Battlefield Trust, before, I strongly recommend this would be a good time to start doing so. And I'll send uh, whatever you send me this month at www.impedimentsofwar.org as a contribution to the show. I'll send a portion of that along with my own donation to the American Battlefield Trust to try to protect that Chancellorsville land. At Impediments of War, you can also see who's going to be on the show next. Uh, Next week, February 8th, as we get into Lincoln season, we've got uh, Edward Acorn, I hope I'm saying his name right, who has several Lincoln books uh, either out or coming out. His new one about to come out is called The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention that Changed History. So new that I haven't read it yet, but we'll be talking about it next week. And on the 15th, Gary Gallagher comes back to the show uh, talking about Bruce Catton. You know Bruce Catton, and you know Gary Gallagher, so say no more. And we'll finish up the month of February with Rebecca Plant and Francis Clark and their new book, which I'm holding in my hand for the first time, just came in the office today. It's called Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. And there are some young-looking men on the cover of that book uh, in Civil War uniforms, an excellent photograph. So... Tonight we are talking about soldiers, uh, soldiers from experience, the forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862 to 1863. That's the title of a book by Eric Michael Burke, who is our guest tonight. Uh, Dr. Burke, are you there? I am. Uh, welcome to the show. Great to be here. It is a it is a true honor, and I'm glad that you're feeling better. I actually had a, a run-in coming back from Vicksburg in the fall uh, on a flight. I got COVID from somebody who was hacking up their lungs, sounded like they just walked out of the Somme. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, didn't have a mask on or anything like that, of course. And then, uh, you know, one thing led to another. <clears throat> well, well, it, it's, it is something I, I, in retrospect, I don't know why I didn't ask my student who was coughing to put on a mask. But it wasn't the germs, it was the actual coughing. My, what's that Shakespeare sonnet line, when, when coughing drowns the parson's saw? Uh, my, my, my sermon was being drowned out by this coughing and, and, you know, it's irritating as heck. Uh, I, I actually did tell the student after class that don't come back on Thursday if you're not feeling better. And, uh, to their credit, they didn't, but anyway, so, so you're feeling better. That's good. Um, I am, this is a fascinating book. It has been getting some, some buzz in the, uh, the profession, I've seen people talking about it, but let me start with a, uh, a off-brand sort of question. The, uh, in somewhere, I don't know, Goodreads or an Amazon review or somewhere, a reader, actually a person who said he hadn't even read the book yet, was critical of your use of the phrase, the so-called Southern Confederacy. Right, right, yeah. I, I first heard that from Chuck Calhoun, whose office I'm sitting in right now. He's, he's the scholar of U.S. Grant, and he used to say that. He said, you could get in a bar fight over this, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> and, and it looked like you've gotten in a, uh, an online fight over that. I love it. Uh, but tell me about your use of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I try not to engage for obvious reasons. I mean, right. I, I, I certainly didn't. Uh, yeah, I, it was an intentional act, uh, but it was not a, you know, certainly not a politically motivated 
uh, act, uh, except insofar as you know, I'm I'm loyal to the Constitution of the United States, and uh, and and thus I, it's hard not to side with folks uh, who also were. Uh, but with that said, uh, you know, it was important to me. Uh, and, and remains important to me every time I, I talk about the war, I teach about the war, I write about the war um, to work toward a depiction of the conflict in the most uh, accurate terms possible as a civil war, as a domestic insurrection and not uh, necessarily as a fight between two uh, legitimate nation states uh, that, that both had you know equal parts foreign recognition. Um, and, you know, using terms that were terms of art at the time, you know, I mean, most of the mm-hmm. men that I wrote about, uh, would have referred to it as the so-called Southern Confederacy if they used the term Confederacy at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that wasn't necessarily because they were worried about them being recognized by the French. It was because they thought of them as, uh, a kind of upstart rebellion, uh, that, uh, could not be accurately depicted as the South, um, since, you know, there were just too many people, um, of of all uh, races and creeds in that region who remained loyal to the the government, um, and it was important to me. Uh, one thing that interestingly hasn't seemed to draw as much fire is that mm-hmm. I, I don't use the term Confederate or Confederacy. I only use Rebel and and I capitalize it. Uh, and part of that was intentional because uh, I'm very much focused on turning the camera around uh, and focusing on the 15th Corps throughout the book. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to draw too much attention. To uh, to what the enemy is doing to them, or or uh, even their thoughts so much on the enemy, and in, except in so far as it is relevant to uh, you know the, the the tactical decisions that they make, and then ultimately the culture that that arises. But I wanted to uh, sort of preserve a little bit of that ambiguity that uh, that was very much a part of their experience of mm-hmm. combat. You know, they didn't often know the precise. Uh, rebel regiments that that they were confronting. Uh, they didn't necessarily have a a kind of one-on-one relationship with. Oh, you know, there's a 31st Alabama over there. You know what that means? I mean, it was mm-hmm. basically just kind of a a generic. Um, you know, there there are there are rebels up on that hill, or there are rebels behind those works, and uh, and we need to get at them. And the subject of my story is not those rebels. Uh, you know, I, I point out uh, various rebel regiments um, at opportunity when when uh, the the words of their their officers or, or the men in the ranks are, are relevant to my story. But I just really didn't want to draw a whole lot of attention to uh, to the rebel side. Uh, and again, not for any political reasons, but but just because I wanted to stay true mm-hmm. as much as relevant to the language that was utilized by the men uh, and also maintain the focus on what my subject was and not, uh, you know, try to paint a the broadest possible canvas. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm writing about the 15th Corps, but now I'm going to tell you a little bit about these these Confederates over here. Well, that makes makes perfect sense. I should let listeners know your your reference to being loyal to the Constitution is not just uh, uh, verbiage. Our, our guest tonight uh, is is currently historian at the U.S. combined U.S. Army Combined Arms Center in Fort Leavenworth, uh, and you've served in the U.S. Army in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, for which your service is of course appreciated by uh, all Americans. But uh, Certainly, that's that, so not just talking. I really like uh, uh, the idea, as you say, of telling the story from a uh, uh, from a viewpoint that, that you're you're looking at it from the viewpoint of the uh, the people involved here, the the 15th Army Corps, and not thus to them the the the, the guys in gray over there are not in you know, specific regiments, as you say. Uh, 
was this did this book originate as a doctoral thesis? It did. Yeah, I worked under uh, Dr. Joseph Glathar at, at Chapel mm-hmm. Hill, uh, and it was originally, uh, you know, I went to Chapel Hill wanting to to work on something similar focused on the Army of the Tennessee at large. Uh, and, and that ultimately, uh, for a variety of methodological reasons, uh, and theoretical reasons even, um, eventually narrowed a little further, uh, to, to the 15th Corps as a, as a more manageable, um, set of, of, um, case studies, if you will, because of the collection of regiments. Uh, but yes, it, it, it began as a dissertation and then was tailored, um, significantly, uh, in order to, to have the book that you have in your hand by LSU Press, right? Which is always the case when one narrows things down. My uh, right, um, my own dissertation was on the the Army of the Ohio, and yep, it takes in a lot of similar. Uh, as I was reading your book, I thought, wow, yeah, I, I get that. That's I, I see where you're going for using, you know, looking at the army as a social institution uh, with a culture of its own, with with a uh, almost a personality of its own, in this case, the 15th Corps. Um, I noticed my book is not in your bibliography, and we'll have some sharp words about that after the break. <laughs> it is in the uh, dissertation. You will find uh, it in the dissertation bibliography. Okay, well, that, then, then all is forgiven. We're all back to, to square go. one. That's good. Um, the uh, One of the striking things in your argument about these units is that the culture is not... Uh, comes from the bottom up, not the top down. That, that you disagree with historians who say that Grant or Sherman uh, uh, imposed their will or their personality on the men they commanded, and you argue it's really the other way around. That the the men developed a culture within their units, within the 15th Corps specifically, and and that went uphill. Uh, we could talk about this throughout the evening, but but give us a. a well, I'm seeing that break is upon us. Um, let's come back and talk about it. Uh, Excellent. We'll take a short break and and talk about how the culture developed, how a specific culture developed in Sherman's 15th Army Corps. Uh, what does that mean to say a culture developed? Many good questions. Uh, we'll ask these all to Eric Michael Burke, author of Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862 to 1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Eric Michael Burke, author of Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862-1863. Eric, just to get the cards on the table for listeners who might be too Eastern theater-centric, where did the 15th Army Corps serve in 1862-1863? What's the underlying chronology that you're talking about in this book? Sure. Well, the bulk of the book is focused on the Mississippi Valley. I mean, you could say the the long Mississippi Valley campaign, uh, you know, originating, I mean, ultimately in in a in a combination of Shiloh and maybe Pea Ridge, and then culminating in, in Vicksburg, uh, and then ultimately making its way eastward uh, down the Tennessee to Chattanooga, uh, which is where the bulk of my story, the main body of my story, terminates. And then there's an epilogue that engages with with Atlanta and the, the Savannah and Carolinas campaigns. Um, but but the core itself uh, comes from from two uh, primary streams of experience, I call them, which is which is, uh, you know, Curtis uh, out there in, in southwestern Missouri and, and northern Arkansas. And then obviously Grant's uh, Army of West Tennessee coming down through Donaldson and, and Shiloh and Corinth. Okay, so the uh, the army, uh, I, I, we ended the first segment talking about culture. Uh, so what does it mean when you say the 15th Corps has a, a culture of its own? Well, the book is focused on what I call tactical culture. Uh, and I define culture basically as any shared set of ideas, beliefs, values, norms, assumptions, that kind of thing that are found within uh, any group with uh, even moderately stable membership over uh, a, a significant period of time. And that can be a very relative statement, obviously. Uh, when I say tactical culture, I mean the ways in which, or, or, or the artifacts is the term of, of art, but the ways in which uh, those, well, specific shared beliefs, values, norms, assumptions, et cetera, et cetera, uh, inform or, or even shape, I won't say determine, but definitely inform and shape the ways in which a, a group, so in my case, a military organization, goes about prosecuting the orders that are assigned to it uh, by, by some higher authorities as a subordinate organization. So we know and we have just a, a mountain of fascinating, a mountain, and a, a growing mountain, I should say, of fascinating scholarship on uh, Civil War soldiers and Civil War units at, at various echelons when it comes to, uh, you know, their outlook on honor, their outlook on race, their on, outlook on, on gender and manhood, their outlook on uh, family and politics, and you know, all these different things that are all absolutely fascinating and are all part of the culture 
uh, or in cultures, I should say, plural, that existed within these organizations. Um, what I am interested in is how all of these various cultural factors, to include, you know, the way they think about certain superiors or, or uh, you know, their, their outlook on honor and, and those types of things, how all of that um, uh, eventually leads to decision-making in tactical circumstances. Uh, and tactical choices, you know, things as in the weeds as uh, do they deploy skirmishers or not? When do they deploy skirmishers? How many companies do they deploy as skirmishers? When do they use artillery? How do they use artillery? What artillery do they use? Those types of tactical decisions, which, of course, had at the time kind of rudimentary doctrinal answers, uh, but vary dramatically from unit to unit for a variety of reasons that I that I bring out in the book. Uh so ultimately, I see uh, questions focused on tactical culture as being questions uh, focused on trying to produce maximally holistic answers to why a given civil war, you know, given regiment, brigade, division, corps, whatever, um, operated in the, in the manner that it did as opposed to some other way. Uh, and it, I think... Somewhat interestingly, my my uh, my interest in that is not so much driven by, uh, you know, wanting to craft uh, different answers about why outcomes certain certain outcomes in, in battles or campaigns occurred the way they did. I think that by asking holistic and comprehensive questions for why, you know, the 54th Ohio did X, Y or Z at the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, allows us to open doors and windows into questions that have much broader uh, uh, relevance, if you will, for um, understanding the Civil War at large, but also just mid-19th century Americans at large, understanding military, American military history, but also you know, global military history. Um, that we, can a- we can ask uh, questions of, the, of this uh, seemingly minutia-based tactical action that uh, will allow us, I believe, um, to, to provide answers that spill over into a lot more than just military history, certainly more than just operational military history. Uh, and, and that was the objective of the book. That, uh, to, as you were saying that, I, I could, again, hear echoes of things I had said to my advisors and, and dissertation panel decades ago, uh, where the world is maybe less immediately fascinated by the minutia of civil war battles, the tactics and so on. Uh, here you're preaching to the converted. Uh, I, I'm all with you. I, I want to learn more about this, and I'm guessing most listeners do too. Uh, but let me ask sort of another big-ish question. One of the the arguments you make, uh, implied and sometimes occasionally stated, is that this, this culture that, that the 15th Corps develops is – is learned more than it is inherent and it's more nurtured than nature uh and it starts with their their first battlefield experience at chickasaw bayou in in north of vicksburg at at the end of 1862 beginning of 1863 uh let, let well first tell us who's in how big is the core what are the units and then let's talk about that battle uh, the Corps itself fluctuates pretty dramatically over the uh, over the course of the war. I mean, uh, you know, on average, 
On a good day, they're probably averaging around 15,000, 20,000 men. But I mean, it, it, it fluctuates dramatically because div whole divisions come and go. I remain focused principally on on the first and second division because they, right. they uh, for, for a variety of different organizational reasons, uh, constitute basically the core, the most stable core of regimental membership uh, within really the Army of the Tennessee. Uh, the, the, almost every other division in the Army comes and goes or gets shuffled up or whatnot, but because these are really Sherman's two pet divisions from the very beginning, he has a, a tendency to kind of protect them from that kind of administrative maelstrom. Um, but uh, the regiments themselves, uh, as you know, and I know many of your listeners know, I mean, one of the reasons that one of the things that makes the, the United States Army, especially the veteran commands in the United States Army, so useful for this kind of study is because of the Lincoln administration's decision not to dabble a whole lot with individual replacement. Uh, and instead, you've got these regiments that, again, as I know, you know, uh, they, they, they attrit and get smaller and smaller over time until, you know, maybe they start with 650, 700 people. Uh, and then by the end of the war, uh, not only are they down to, you know, uh, maybe 150 uh, where yes. where Company A is constituted by, you know, an orderly sergeant, uh, two <laughs> corporals and a private. Uh, by the time they get to the march to the sea, um, but what's important about that from a from a culture sense is that that orderly sergeant, those two corporals, and the private have, for the most part, been there since the beginning. Uh, you know, they may have one of them may have joined uh, in as as some sort of replacement, uh, you know, halfway through the conflict. But for the most part, the majority of the men in those units. Are are veterans for of the very beginning, uh, you know, of the incipient days of of the camp rendezvous and uh, or the rendezvous camp and and those types of things. And for that reason, that means that every single regiment within the organization. Uh, because also they're not doing a whole lot, well, almost any transfers between regiments. That means that each individual regiment is a kind of container of experience. And thus, after all the meaning making processes that happen informally within these units after experiences, they're also containers of of cultures. And when I say distinctive, that doesn't mean that, you know, one regiment is completely unique uh, and totally unlike any other regiment in its brigade. Obviously, there's there's degrees of of similarity and, and difference. But but the uh, the the lessons, if you will, that are pulled out of the raw material of, of experience after each fight uh, go through this process of of meaning making within the ranks where they sit around camp and they say, you know, hey, what did you think about that? And do you think we can trust that general or that general? Or, you know, should we have been asked to do that or not? And soldiers still do this. You know, this isn't mm -hmm. like a civil war phenomenon. Uh, but the difference now, obviously, is that uh, soldiers get pushed around and transferred to, you know, different units and they take their experiences and, the, and their unit cultures and they go off to some other battalion where they, where they arrive and that battalion does something a certain way and they say, wow, you know, this isn't the way things were done in my last unit. Uh, but that didn't happen in the Civil War because there was no last unit. You were in the 76th Ohio until the end of the war, and then you weren't a soldier anymore. And what's really important from a, a tactical culture sense is you weren't a soldier for the most part before the <laughs> war ever happened. So you didn't come. You came into the army with all sorts of ideas about manhood and honor and and race and politics and all that. But you didn't typically come into the army with a whole lot of strong opinions about, you know, w when you ought to be using rifled artillery versus smoothbore artillery or, you know, how long a preliminary bombardment ought to go or those types of things. I mean, you, you learned them on the fly uh, as a result of there being a lack of of wide scale martial expertise. Well, let me ask this then. The the. 
Which of the the army's engagements uh, taught them the most? Where where did they they get the this this idea that that frontal assaults, especially, which is one of the main main arguments you make, were not successful. Right. There's a learning curve that is distinctive uh, to, you know, well, really every regiment. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's that's something that Patty Griffith and, and others, to include yourself, really uh, uh, brought out in a lot of their scholarship. So I'm not necessarily new there. But uh, what I am attempting to do is uh, track the uh, the quote unquote lessons that are learned in their organization across uh, the the organization at large. So not mm-hmm. just um, what the Corps as a whole learned, but when did uh, various brigades begin to begin making the, the, the change in the way that they thought about certain things? When did that move to a division level, so on and so forth? But when we say lessons, we tend to imply that uh, learning lessons means that you got it right. Uh, and one of the, the ways that I diverge from some of the kind of lessons learned military historiography is that I believe that, you know, soldiers learn lessons, quote unquote, one way or the other, regardless of whether or not they're actually an accurate depiction of of reality. Uh, so, um, you know, and, and you see that most vividly within the group that that I put Sherman in. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is his his headquarters group, if you will. So you know, no general is is running around solo, uh, at, regardless of of the echelon. They're they're embedded in groups as well. And uh, you know, Sher- one of the problems that arises in the 15th Corps is that Sherman and his headquarters group tend to experience these battles and think about them and and learn quote unquote lessons from them that are very very different from the lessons and experiences and meanings that are developed within the ranks of the Corps. And, and even those meanings, as I, as I uh, mentioned earlier, are different between divisions, between brigades, so on and so forth. But the frontal assault aversion uh, is one of the earliest shared experiences that arises uh, throughout, you know, across almost the entirety of the Corps after Chickasaw Bayou. Uh, it's it's one of the, the kind of universals of what it was to be a Chickasaw Bayou, regardless of what subordinate organization you were in, uh, you likely experienced a pretty dramatic reversal at the hands of, of rebels who were who were pretty firmly entrenched. And, and more important than that, if you didn't experience it, you certainly heard about it from folks who did. And uh, and I have instances that I talk about in the book where where units that were not directly engaged uh, had conversations with units, members of units who had been. And you can hear you can just see in their letters and diaries uh, as they turn these these thoughts over in their minds that night or the or the next night. And they start saying things uh, with each other to the effect of. Um, you know, the, the, the 25th Iowa went up there and got butchered. And, uh, you know, if they send us up there tomorrow, we're going to get butchered because we're no better than they are. And, uh, you know, they, these generals are, are fools for even asking us to do these types of things, even though they themselves hadn't done anything of the kind. They'd never even been in a fight. Uh, but but they learn from each other through these meaning making processes, uh, while at the same time, in the in the headquarters node uh, with Sherman and his staffers and his you know his division commanders, um, they 
are deriving completely different lessons because their experiences of the battle is obviously different, but uh, their meaning making processes are different. So they can come away with, you know, certainly they don't think they're insane themselves. And no. instead they come to the conclusion that, well, you know, the men are, you know, they're, they're weak or they're, they don't have the discipline that they need or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which comes uh, with it, a, a completely different culture, a different tactical culture, a different set of assumptions and values and beliefs as they relate to these problems than what, than what exists in the ranks of that organization. And as those two things drift further and further apart, then you've got a major problem because the, the command node is then developing plans that, is, that are fundamentally out of step with the beliefs and assumptions of those in the ranks about what is possible and what is feasible and what is reasonable. Uh, moving forward. So the the experience at Chickasaw Bayou is replicated to some extent at Arkansas Post at their next battle, right. uh, where they, although the Confederates surrender, still the, the units who are launching frontal attacks take high casualties. Uh, the same Corps then participates in the, uh, we're still in the Mississippi Valley, in, in the Vicksburg campaign, uh, and you note they, they don't they're not at Champions Hill, or they're they're not in all the other battles. The Grand's Army is in there; uh, they're in the at the end of the line, so they don't have right. to participate in those. But they do have the misfortune, as as the whole army does, to get to the gates of Vicksburg in May 1863. And uh, Tim Smith has written a wonderful book about just the the assaults, the May yeah. what, 17th to 23rd. Yeah. Uh, he talked about it on this show. And uh, listeners, you can go back and if you want to be depressed by uh, the effects of unrewarded heroism by the the federal soldiers you can listen to that again uh, the the casualties are enormous they they lose uh, a lot of good soldiers there when it's over though they are now going to settle in for a siege and that I, I was struck your by your reference to uh, 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 was it Sodergan? Uh, what's his first name? Bruce. Uh, is that right? Um, the, the wonderful book on the uh, the Army of the Potomac and the Petersburg yeah. campaign. Yeah. Uh, and and he, he was on the show to talk about that. And he makes the the point that the troops, Grant's troops, are demoralized by the end of the Overland campaign. But trench warfare actually picks up their spirits. We think of trench warfare as the most depressing thing possible. Uh, they're actually happy. Now they're undercover. They're safe. And you suggest, to some extent, the same thing happens here, that Vicksburg is not a deadly, hideous experience, but a great learning experience. Um, yeah. I, I've gone on too long about this. We'll take another short break. We'll come right back and talk about the Army, uh, the 15th Corps in particular, at Vicksburg with our guest tonight, Eric Michael Burt, author of Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862-1863. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, 
self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Eric Michael Burke, author of Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862 to 1863. We've been talking about how this corps developed a, a culture of its own, uh, a way of doing things, including an aversion to the deadly frontal assaults it experienced at Arkansas Post and Vicksburg. Uh, but Eric, you know, no unit that I can think of enjoyed frontal assaults or thought they were a good idea after they'd been through one. Uh, but you show it that certainly by the time they're at Vicksburg, they, there are things that they are good at that they, I wouldn't say they enjoy doing, but that they, they don't mind being ordered to do because they know how to do them and they're not quite as dangerous. What, what, what do they get good at? Well, they get good at sharpshooting. They get good at rifle marksmanship. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Vicksburg is in many ways even better than Petersburg or any other siege during the war. Uh, One of the finest opportunities for riflemen to put a lot of rounds downrange and has spent a whole lot of time uh, behind their weapons. And we... Uh, we we talk uh, as historians about how these guys didn't have a whole lot of marksmanship training. They didn't have mm-hmm. a whole lot of of uh, opportunities to learn how to judge distance and you know, those types of things. But putting uh, you know hundreds, uh, in some cases thousands of rounds uh, into the same parapet uh, every day from you know a second or third parallel. Uh, well, or or even from behind the batteries. I mean, there's stories that I talk about in the book of of boys grabbing their rifles and walking up behind some parrot battery and just setting up camp and firing away all day long, uh, watching the the dust plumes and trying to guess how far the range is and and adjusting their sights accordingly. Um, and the more that they did that, uh, the more experience they developed at rifle marksmanship, which it was going to pay huge dividends down the road when most of the Atlanta campaign and frankly, much of the Chattanooga campaign, uh, hinged upon rifle marksmanship in, in skirmishing, uh, and their ability to be lethal, uh, with rifled muskets, uh, in, in those types of environments was in part, uh, honed in situations like that. Uh, firing away behind Vicksburg parapets. You mentioned skirmishing, and that's a big part of your story, that most of us have read how even a frontal attack might be preceded by a line of skirmishers. Uh, 
But we also, if you read Napoleonic literature, you read about clouds of skirmishers. That's always the word. Right. Uh, a whole group of people scattered about uh, to avoid forming a big target. You, it, it seems like there, the, the 15th Corps makes more of skirmishers than than typical Civil War units did in the federal armies. Uh, yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, it's it's one of the things that, unfortunately, and somehow uh, shockingly, is is not something that has been studied a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we obviously know that the 15th Corps didn't didn't invent skirmishers. The Army of the Potomac was was kicking out skirmishers, uh, um, maybe just as often, and if 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 maybe. Uh, a bit rarer, I would argue. It, a lot of that has to do with the terrain in which the Army of the Potomac typically found uh, the Army of Northern Virginia or, or whoever it happened to, to bump up against. Uh, and not to say that you know there's not forests and and that type of thing out east. I mean, obviously the wilderness and Chancellorsville are, are great examples of that. To say nothing of plenty of fighting in Antietam and, and Gettysburg. Um, but the Southwest, what was then called the Southwest, so you know Mississippi, uh, Alabama, uh, Tennessee. Um, is uh, statistically at the time just exponentially more heavily wooded and cluttered uh, than than anywhere you're going to find uh, in the east. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean per acre. And and for that reason, uh, a lot of mass-based columnar uh, tactics were not necessarily impossible, but were were sort of prone to to failure because it was difficult to maintain a mass of men with any kind of cohesion without them just breaking apart because there's too many trees or there's, you know, at, at the very last, an abatee or, or some sort of obstacle. Uh, and it only took a couple attempts at trying to maintain a mass, say, column of division or, or even column by regiments or, or something like that uh, to say, you know, this just isn't working out. And, uh, you know, we, we are increasingly improving in terms of, of marksmanship and our ability to, to suppress uh, the enemy with rifle fire. And so maybe if we can achieve that with with just clouds of skirmishers, as you said, which is a term of art they used as well at the time, um, then somebody else on one of the flanks uh, will be able to maintain a massed column of divisions and be able to drive the the assault home. Well, as we know, in almost every case that that everyone on the flanks was having exactly the same problem and uh, mm-hmm. and, and and coordination was was abysmal due to you know lack of radios and, and everything else uh, and and one thing led to another until you had this this just mutual exchange of rifle fire at close range by clouds of skirmishers uh, engaging an enemy that was that was pretty well entrenched and the you know as you pointed out in the very beginning the the the, the conclusion that frontal assaults were ill-fated was by no means you know unique to the 15th Corps. Uh, what was unique in that regard was the the gradual shift of the intended role of a mass battle line versus the skirmish line. And one of the things hmm. that we see uh, at large over the course of the latter half of the 19th century, of course, is the is the skirmish line growing in importance and it it shifting. Uh, from a kind of appetizer tray, if you will, for the main course <laughs> of the mass battle line to drive things home, or or mass column more in in Europe, uh, to the the mass in back uh, serving more as a reserve for the skirmish line, which is where the bulk of the powder is burned, uh, and the mass is feeding 
the skirmish line with more and more companies or more and more uh, platoons later on. And, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of forward momentum offensive capacity because you don't have that mass in the front. Uh, but, but the civil war kind of, uh, for, for for different reasons, right? With with different units, and and, and everybody doesn't come to this conclusion for the same uh, by the same uh, route, and the uh, the process of of tracing how tactical culture develops within these different units is in part the answer to how it comes about in different ways in different units. But we all by '65 uh, are arriving west and east to a conclusion that looks very similar regardless of what organization you're looking at. And I point out mm-hmm. some of that in the epilogue where you've got, you know, John DePeister and some of these, these, uh, these kind of future minded infantry officers and just military observers who looked at the army of the Potomac at during the Overland campaign and discussed how, well, wow, you know, we are burning most of our powder as skirmishers now. And the kind of mass battle lines of, uh, of the bull run days seem to be more or less a thing of the past for, and I would argue different reasons for the army of the Potomac than the, the heavily terrain and kind of vegetation focused reasons of the, the army of the Tennessee, but one way or the other by different paths, uh, the, the and, and completely different paths for the the rebel armies, which are also coming to similar conclusions. Uh, we're all driving toward that point that's going to make 1865 look naturally more and more like the the regulations of the 1890s uh, than did anything that was going on in in 1861. And part of my story is is explaining how you get to that point. Uh, with one particular military organization in hopes that others will pick up the flag and, and look at the Army of the Potomac or, or other organizations. Well, one of the, the vivid examples of that that you give is that uh, at Ringgold Gap outside of next to Lookout Mountain in 1864, uh, or late 63 rather, where uh, uh, one division from the 15th Corps is attacking and they're they're paired with some of Hooker's men who have come from the Army of the Potomac. And right. The, the Potomac boys are sent to attack, and they go up shoulder to shoulder in the old style. That's right. what their their culture still calls for that, as everyone was doing in 1862. And the the uh, the regiments from the Western unit are, are you know, shocked and appalled by this, and, and to no one's surprise, they all come running back after they encounter the rebel fire. Uh, but there we see the two kinds of tactics compared. Certainly, then, then this does point the way to the future. Um, uh, so, so, well, you, you said hopefully this will lead to other studies, and I guess that was the question I had as I was reading this. Um, and it's the same question people have asked me about the Army of the Ohio. Are, are my conclusions relevant to other armies? Are your conclusions about 15th Corps uh, unique to 15th Corps, or... Do we apply them across the whole war? What, or do we just need to do more studying? Uh, definitely the latter. Uh, you know, we, we need more studying. You know, my intent was never for the 15th Corps to, or my my conclusions about the 15th Corps to argue for some sort of representativeness uh, of the 15th Corps. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a historian just like you, and I assume many of your listeners. And for that reason, you know, I'm kind of a consummate advocate of particularity. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in, um, you know, just arguing that the, the same conclusions that the 15th Corps came to, 
Uh, if they were, and I and I think we can all agree, many of the things the 15th Corps believes uh, in, in 1864 are, are very similar to what, say, the 17th Corps or even the 6th Corps or, you know, any other organization uh, came to. But it's the pathway by which they come to those conclusions that I think, as I said earlier in the program, are the mm-hmm. most fruitful lines of approach and inquiry for historians, because that is where we we can link the operational questions into broader conversations about the Civil War and mid-19th century America or military history and military science even uh, more yes. broadly, because we can we can uh, harness these questions that, you know, one of the reasons I came to this this uh, this set of problems originally was someone said um, sarcastically to me that they got tired of of reading about uh, how the, the 35th Ohio went uh, 30 yards to the right at uh, Chancellorsville instead of 30 yards to the left. And uh, and and thus the battle was was lost, you know, for lack of a nail yes. type of type of discussion. And and I got to thinking about it. Yeah, it's true. There's there's a lot of just raw narrative out there that does get into the weeds and and uh, you know tells us a lot about what happened, but but doesn't really spend any time analyzing why oh, uh, they went to the right instead of the left. And ultimately, probably didn't make any difference that they went to the right instead of the left in the grand scheme of things. But I want to argue that understanding why it was right and not left, obviously that's an extreme example, but you get Mm -hmm. my point. Understanding why it was right instead of left uh, opens up a a wide array of opportunities for us to tell extremely comprehensive and holistic stories about how we get to that point. And those stories have all sorts of branches that lead off of them into every other subfield of human activity uh, during the war, before the war, after the war, you name it. It gets interdisciplinary. It it begins thinking about ideas and decision making more than it does, uh, you know, just the technology of who had what guns and and what kinds of cannons and what genius, what general was a genius and what general was a fool. And uh, and those types of things, which we've hashed and rehashed and rehashed again and will continue to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to provide what I hope is a theoretical, it might be a strong word, but but a model, a methodological model uh, for in, in the way of, of tactical culture and the concept of tactical culture to then apply that to other organizations, other groups, it doesn't even have to be military groups, but obviously tactical culture being specific to, to military operations. But I, I would like to see, uh, you know, ultimately, and I, and I, uh, um, my hope is that the operational history of the war uh, can begin to move in a more analytical turn. And I think you already see that mm-hmm. a lot of the, you know, certainly Earl Hess's literature, your own literature, uh, you know, Tim Smith, a lot of these folks who are asking really fascinating, Andy Bledsoe, these mm-hmm. people who are asking really fascinating questions, uh, Carol Reardon and Lorian Foote, uh, uh, you know, uh, Susanna Ural, uh, people are, are, are increasingly asking interesting questions about military organizations that extend beyond just telling the story of the Vicksburg campaign from the 15th Corps' point of view or telling the story of the Gettysburg campaign from the 2nd Corps' point of view. Not that there's not a place for that. And I'm right. not trying to you know, besmirch any of that, but I think historiographically, 
uh, if we are going to bridge the operational side of the house, the old drums and guns side of the house, with all of the just incredibly fascinating avant-garde stuff that's going on in literally every other subfield of Civil War historiography, then we've Mm -hmm. got to really do the hard work of trying to find ways to bridge it. Uh, that doesn't just say, well, we're not going to ask questions about battles anymore or or even worse than that, you know, gender and whatnot has nothing to do with with war fighting. And so I, I don't deal with that scholarship. I mean, that that whole, you know, dichotomous kind of thinking has to end if we're going to, you know, truly, uh, you know, meet out the, the the bounty that is available with uh, the bridging of these two camps. Amen. I, I could not agree more that this, uh, the sophistication of this study and the interest of it, whether you're someone who, who likes getting in the weeds with the tactical minutia and who shot John and what formation they're in at the time, or you're interested in cutting edge of Civil War scholarship, uh, this book bridges them. And you'll listeners, you will enjoy it. The book is called Soldiers from Experience, The Forging of Sherman's 15th Army Corps, 1862-1863. It's written by Eric Michael Burke, who's been our guest tonight. Eric, it was a real pleasure talking with you about this. It's an honor. It is an absolute honor. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.